Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. I'm Kevin Hector. And we're very pleased to have with us today our guest, Wendy Doniger, who is the Mircha Eliade Distinguished Service Professor Emerita of the History of Religions at the University of Chicago, and our dear colleague. So, Wendy, thank you very much for being with us, and welcome. Glad to be back with colleagues from the Divinity School. Well, we want to talk with you today about the translation project that you're working on now. Uh, you said that you're translating portions of the Mahabharata. I know that uh, you've done translation projects in the past uh, on uh, Sanskrit literature, uh, on Hindu texts, and so this is I'm sure uh, a continuation in certain ways of what you've done before, but I'm sure there are also new things too. But before we jump into the translation itself and maybe the themes that you're addressing, can you just tell us a little bit about the Mahabharata itself, uh, just to introduce folks to what this is? So the Mahabharata is the ancient Sanskrit epic um, composed in Sanskrit, the language of ancient India, probably for about a half a millennium, right around the turn of the millennium, 300 BCE to 300 CE. It is 10 times as long as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. It's an enormous book. Um, and there have been many attempts to translate it into English. There's a curse on anyone who tries to translate the whole thing. When I arrived at uh, Chicago in 1978, we, the Chicago Press, had initiated a project to translate the whole thing by their then Sanskritist Hans van Boitenen, um, who was right in the middle of the fifth book, and he died in the middle of the sixth book um, a couple of years later. And the project has basically waned uh, since then. And finally, I decided to translate the last of last four books of the 18 books. It's divided into 18 books. The last four books um, have been partially translated and badly translated and summarized, but there is no reliable translation of them. Um, and they deal with the aftermath of the war, which is in some ways the most religious part of the book. Um, everybody is dead, all the heroes have been killed, but the old people are left, the mothers are left, the widows are left, and everyone basically tries to commit suicide. And so there's oh, quite a lot about Indian attitudes towards suicide, which ones are okay, which ones are not. And in the end, there's a sort of a magical transformation and everybody goes to heaven. Some people go to hell. Some people to go to heaven for a little while and then go to hell. Some people go to hell for a little while and then go to heaven. There's a big mess basically with the different ways people die. Some are killed in battle. Some dive into a river and appear in heaven. Some come to heaven with their own bodies. Some leave their bodies behind and take on a heavenly body in heaven. There's a whole, it's as if the Mahabharata is almost trying to summarize all the ideas that people had at that time about what happens to you when you die and the reasons for wanting to die. It's like a, a lot of them are, are suffering from what we would call survivor's guilt. Why are we alive? when all the young men have been killed. Something like the mood after World War I in parts of Europe, all the good young men have been killed and here we are left behind. So it raises many important religious issues and there are also magical sequences. People appear from a river and disappear again. There's a wonderful episode with the dog who turns out to be the incarnation of the moral law, Dharma, testing a king. Um, 
So it's an exciting book philosophically, and there are enough things happening in it uh, to keep it lively. And I figure you're not supposed to translate the whole of the Mahabharata, but if I jump in and just translate the last few books, the curse should not hit me. So that's my plan. It sounds like one of the things that gives you energy as a scholar or drives you as a scholar is a sense of almost delight, right? That you, you pay a certain kind of attention to texts and ideas, but it's not the arguments necessarily. It's not the technical stuff. That stuff matters, but it sounds like you just really find joy in stories and almost a sense of wonder. Is that true? It's absolutely true. I began this project about six months ago, and when the uh, pandemic struck, I reacted as many of us did. Suddenly, I couldn't do all the things I like to do. At the same time, I had a health crisis, which involved having a hip replaced, which was quite painful. And I was in probably the lowest spirits I've been in for a long time. And I took up this project. And it was such fun. And it was such a challenge. So it's partly just seeing what the text says and reading what other people have tried to do and how they got it wrong and mm. how they had some good ideas that I could still use, but they still didn't exactly get it right and how I could try to do it. And then I go back to it the next day and I look at what I wrote and I thought, no, there's a better way to say that. How about if I say it like this? That's the way. Move all the passives to actives. Take all the nouns and put them at the end of the sentence. So it's kind of an artistic challenge to first of all, understand the text. That takes a while. It's in Sanskrit. It's not in very difficult Sanskrit. It's like Koine Greek. If you can read it Greek at all, you can read Koine Greek. So this is the easiest Sanskrit there is. It's storytelling Sanskrit. Once upon a time, there was a king and he went down to the river. It's not like reading Hegel in Sanskrit or something like that. But still, it's Sanskrit. So you have to first of all, understand the text. And then you write out a rough translation of what you think it says. And you realize that what you have written is not English. It's translatorese. And then the, the fun of it, in a way, is putting it into English so that the reader says, oh, this is what's happening, and this is what's happening. Putting in notes when you have to, putting in as much into the text as you can without finally saying, I've got to step back and explain to the reader who this guy is, or what happened before, or something like that. So arranging the information so that the reader gets as much of the information as possible before he or she reads the text. So there are artistic challenges. And then they're just such great stories. And you say, oh, they're going to love this story. This is just such fun. Wait till I read this. It's going to be wonderful. So the anticipation that the reader will have as much fun with it that I'm having is the joy of it. And I wake up in the morning and I think, oh, great. I'm on chapter 17 now. And I rush and I brush my teeth. Um, so that it's a real pleasure. And of course, the price I pay is that I go into a fairly serious postpartum depression every time I finish a major project. I hate it to be over. And I try to arrange it that I chain smoke books so that there is another one waiting for me. When I finish this translation, I have another project to take up. Otherwise, I don't know what I would do. Wendy, can you give us a specific example, maybe a line or a section where you were wrestling with those kind of problems in relation to, say, other translations or interpretations in relation to the particular ideas that you're dealing with in the Mahabharata? Yes, well, there, there are certain words. For instance, the important word dharma. 
So Dharma is now a word in English, which means that people don't understand what it really means in Sanskrit, but it is untranslatable. And when I did a translation, you learn, when I did a translation years ago of the laws of Manu, which is about the, the laws of Dharma, which is the way you're supposed to behave, the right way to do things, justice, rightness. So people translate it as righteousness and justice, but it, it's, it's Dharma, it's that whole system of belief. So the question of how to translate Dharma. So when I retranslated that passage, I decided, and in this book too, not to translate it that the solution to translating Dharma was not to translate it, to explain what it is. And then you see how often it appears in the text, Dharma this. Then there are adjectives. So uh, the king is often called Dharmatman, which means having a soul which is made of Dharma. And other translators call him righteous. Well, it, it means he has a soul which is made of Dharma. And so I decided to invent the word Dharmic, um, which is easy enough to learn once you've learned Dharma. A lot of people are Dharmic. And then you see in English how often the word Dharma pops up in Sanskrit. So the Dharma king said this. It means he's going to try to do the right thing here, whereas calling him righteous, it may mean he gives money to the poor, he's nice to his mother. What does righteous mean, right? So there are times when I went back into the, just a few times where I went back into the Sanskrit and said, I think I, I, I made the reader learn five words in Sanskrit. There's another word, tapas, which really means heat. Tapas to heat things up. You just heat up water on a stove, it's top. But tapas means deciding that you're going to leave normal human life and stop up all the openings in your body from which heat normally escapes, namely your emotions, your anger, anything, your lust, and so forth, and basically to tighten yourself up so that you generate inside of yourself a magic power they can use to revive the dead, to curse someone, to stare at them and burn them up with fire. So it's really a fiery metaphor of power, and it's usually translated as asceticism. He engaged in asceticism. But that leaves out all the dynamic of the word tapas. So I decided to teach the reader the word tapas, which occurs a hundred times in every chapter, and said he engaged in tapas. He went to the tapas fire. He went to the tapas forest to meditate. He used his tapas to revive the dead child and so forth. So one solution to translation in a few instances, you can't push the reader too far, is not to translate is to teach him or her just a few words you need. So that changed the whole feeling of the book. The reader sees the patterns. Here comes tapas again. Everybody's doing this tapas. The king has some, the women have theirs. So that, that's one major change that differs from other translations. There's just a couple. There's another wonderful word, manyu. So manyu is what a warrior has so that whenever anybody says to him, he says, to hell with you and beats him up. It means not putting up with any nonsense. The word brook, as it used to be used in English, mm -hmm. he would not brook an insult to his wife. So it's, in some ways it's very positive, but it also means that you're very fragile and that you get into a lot of fights you wouldn't get into if you didn't have it. So I'm not... I haven't, I haven't finished it. I may or may not translate it, but if I do, I'm translate, translating it as proud anger, 
and I'm going to put Munyu in parenthesis because one of the interesting things is when you get to heaven, the king sees all his enemies in heaven. He says, I don't want to be in heaven with them. I, I, I killed them. These are bad people. And then they say to him, let go of your Munyu. There's no Munyu in heaven. There's no proud anger in heaven. There's, there's not that kind of righteous anger that gets you into a fight. So you realize that the difference between life on earth and life in heaven is this proud spirit that makes you unwilling to give, to negotiate, to see the enemy's point of view. It's actually a very important word. So I've written a paragraph about it in the introduction, and I'll have to decide in the final draft, I'm still working on it, whether to actually make them learn, learn the word manu or put it in parenthesis and call it proud anger so that the reader will recognize that in the beginning, people said, oh, what a great guy he is. He has all this proud anger. But at the end, the king of the gods says to him, there's no such thing as proud anger in heaven. You're going to live here with these guys. They died as you did on the battlefield. That is what heaven is, is being willing to live with these guys. So it's like a statement against war, against the things that um, make people violent in a way. So there's all sorts of things you can do. You know, everyone says there's a joke. Every word in Sanskrit means itself, its opposite, a word for an elephant, and a position in sexual intercourse. Because Sanskrit words have lots and lots of meanings. So one of the translators' tasks is to choose the right one in each context. But there are some words that have so many meanings that there is really no way to say it in English. And I think a really good translation, the reader's going to invest something in this book, he can learn four or five Sanskrit words. So I have a, a quick follow-up on that, um, on one part of what you just said. It strikes me that Dharma is a peculiar case among the cases you mentioned, because as you said, Dharma has become enough of an English word that it's not just you need to teach people a Sanskrit word, you need to unteach them an English word, right? So Heidegger translators will often leave Dasein untranslated, and that's fine because Dasein hasn't made its way into English, but leaving something like Zeitgeist untranslated because it has this technical sense and Geist is a technical term and we need to leave that untranslated, that doesn't work because Zeitgeist has become part of the English vernacular. So how do you tackle that as a translator when you have several sets of books, right? You know what the Sanskrit means, but you also know that it's taken on an English meaning that isn't going to help you. Arawak, on the road, the Dharma bombs, indeed, yes. You know what's even worse than Dharma is karma. Ever since Shirley <laughs> MacLaine took it up, it didn't karma. And karma is very important. So karma is another word that I explain and try to use. Um, if you use it in context, it's quite clear that the context shows you what it means. So karma has the double meaning. It, it literally means ac action. Uh, it comes from the verb kur, it's cognate with kreo, and it's an Indo-European uh, verb for, for to make or do. So you can say someone gives up his karma which means he, he rejects actions. He decides he's not going to sacrifice, he's not going to marry, he's not going to do anything. Karma also means the record of the actions of what you have committed in life, the good and the bad. So you amass good karma and you try not to amass bad karma. 
And I think those meanings are close enough to what they mean in English that you can put a spin on them and use them. Dharma is more difficult because it's used in funny ways. And I think I just have to try to rely on, first of all, my own very clear explanation of what it doesn't mean and the context so that there is a god of dharma incarnate. He is the father of King Yudhishthira. He makes, dharma makes a mistake and gets cursed to be reborn as a slave. So dharma has all sorts of adventures in this text. And in the course of reading it, the reader will discover what dharma means in India and that it doesn't necessarily mean what Kerouac meant and that karma means part of what Shirley MacLaine thinks it means, but that it has... Um, very important implications at the end because there's a great passage. You can transfer karma. So if you have a lot of good karma, you've got your record is full of A pluses, and you're with someone who's got nothing but Fs and is in real trouble. You can give him some of your grades. And there's a scene in Hell where King Yudhishthir, who has nothing but good karma, gives off a sweet, cool smell from his body, which helps the people in hell who are being tormented as in our hells by heat as well as by torture and they and so he wants to stay in hell because he wants to help them he's compassionate but that's a problem because he's not supposed to be in hell he's a good man he's supposed to be in heaven so the text questions the question of transfer of merit which becomes very important in buddhism as well but is right there already in hinduism david tracy years ago made me understand it as well as anybody else he said when David has always been in poor health. He said when he was in a little, little boy and was homesick and he felt really bad, his mother said that he should offer up his suffering to the souls in purgatory and it would make them feel a little bit better. And that is transfer of karma in a Catholic context. It also meant, however, that he would feel better for having done this good thing and therefore he wouldn't suffer quite so much. So... There are ways in which we can draw upon parts of our own tradition, sometimes obscure parts. I don't know whether Catholics still offer up their suffering for souls in purgatory 50 years later. There are ways that you can combine the half wrong, half right ideas that a non-indological reader has and put her on the right track so that she gets what you're talking about. And then she just sees how the word is used in the text and gradually it works its way out. So it's interesting to me to think about the way you have a reader in mind as you do this. And you're making decisions about what the reader will have when they come to the text, how much you want to trust the reader, how much you can lead them. Um, I'm just, I would just be interested to hear you talk a little bit about what sort of readers you have in mind do you ever test your intuitions about what your readers are going to be like? I'm just interested in that, that side of things as you do the translation work. It's a good question. Um, I always have a reader in mind. My early books, which were basically revisions of my Harvard PhD and my Oxford DPhil, I was writing, I thought, for the Indological community, people who knew about India and so forth. And then I changed. By the time I was 35, I was doing Penguin Classics. And I did a Penguin Classics called Hindu Myths, in which I assumed that the reader basically was smart, 
but knew nothing about India. And in particular, I wrote this uh, about this in my memoir also. I had my father in mind. Mm. My father, who was a publisher and an educated man with a degree in English, but who didn't know about India and things like that. And in particular, my father was on my side. Hmm. My father wanted to like whatever I wrote. And I found over the years that my students and indeed sometimes my grown-up colleagues are paralyzed and sometimes can't write because they imagine the kind of trouble they could get into if someone of ill will pounced on them and said, aha, you missed that, you missed that. And I think it's a terrible shame to assume an, a hostile reader. Now, I have hostile readers. I right. wrote a book in 2010 that stepped on the toes of the Hindu right wing and all hell broke loose. And I still get some emails from them, as I sometimes also get emails from readers who've loved that book. It's my most successful book. Uh, it's still in print. It sold 100,000 copies. It was no one ever did me such a favor as the Hindu right in, in attacking that book so publicly. But I don't write for them. I don't say, oh boy, are they going to get me? I'm going to leave myself wide open here. I assume the reader's going to try to figure this out. If I make a joke, the reader will get the joke. At one point, I had a sentence in Sanskrit which basically said something terrible has happened and everyone is really upset. And the sage is trying to calm them down. And he says, a man who has really firm understanding is not upset by things which are impossible to do anything about, which are fated to happen. And I translated, that is, the wise man has the serenity to bear the things he cannot change, which is Reinhold Niebuhr's famous first line of the serenity prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I thought some alcoholic is going to read this book someday and is going to say, why there's the serenity prayer in the middle of the ancient Sanskrit Mahabharata. So I put little jokes like that. It's, it's an accurate translation. It's just the choice of the word serenity. Um, so I do think of the reader. I think of the reader as, a, as an English speaker, educated, um, interested in the subject, or she wouldn't have bought the book, but not knowing anything. I say this book was written in 500 BC, the Vedas were written 100 years before that, and so forth and so on. So I explain everything that someone who'd never heard of India should know, but I expect the reader to know a word like serenity, not necessarily to know the Reinhold Niebuhr prayer, but I expect an intelligent, educated reader who is uh, interested in the book and wants to enjoy it. Uh, and I assume that the reader is on my side the way my father was always on my side. That's part of the fun of it. And I always try to persuade my students that they're writing for me and that I'm on their side um, to get over the writer's block that uh, plagues so many in our profession. So, so yes, I do have a reader in mind. So actually, I wanted to follow up on precisely these points. It seems like there's a real thread throughout your work, Wendy, that's about access. Yes. Uh, access to underappreciated themes, uh, features in Hinduism, uh, access to texts that are inaccessible because of language, and so your interest in translating. Yep. And you know, you started out today talking about how there are these relevant themes in the Mahabharata and in, in these uh, sections that you're translating right now. So, can you talk a little bit about 
why that access is important. What is it that, as a feature of that access, um, sort of twin concept of relevance, what is it that is really driving you to foreground uh, this issue of accessing what is otherwise inaccessible? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess there's a negative aspect to it, which is, I don't know your subject, Jeff, but it seems to me there's no academic subject in the world about which so much bullshit has been written as Hinduism. There is more... Oh, I was going to say maybe the Bible. (laughs) Well, I think it would be a close race. Um, (laughs) I certainly feel there's a lot of wrong stuff out there. There's the wicked wrong stuff that the Hindu writers bring out, but there's all the touchy-feely stuff that people have gotten wrong over the centuries and so forth. So there are some really terrible translations of the Mahabharata available also. Retellings, which are retold from God knows what, but so people think they've got the text and they haven't. So I kind of want to give them access to closer to the text. The only way to learn the text is to read Sanskrit. But I'm trying to get them as close to the text as I can get them without that. So on the one hand, I want to, the book that I got in trouble with was called The Hindus an Alternative History. It was intended as an alternative to the history that was being put forth on the media by the Hindu rights. So don't listen to them, listen to me, was what I was saying. And to some extent, I'm saying that here too. Secondly, it seems to me that these are important issues on which the ancient Indian writers had, I wouldn't say unique, but had great insight. I mean, the question of survivor's guilt, something we read about so much. People are nowadays, because of media access and so forth, so much aware of people who are dying all over and they're not. I grew up right, I was born at the very beginning of World War II. I grew up among Jews who had not died in Auschwitz. So I knew what it was like to be left over. And when I started reading this part of the Mahabharata, I thought, this is a victorious war. These guys are the victors. They should be celebrating and they're all committing suicide. What's going on here? So I realized it's, it's a, a public issue. It's, it's a surviving issue. It's not ancient India. But the idea of how you live your life when all the people you love are dead is not an ancient issue from ancient India. It's something that happens to people who live a long time, especially in a time when lots of people are dying, which is, of course, any time. It's happening right now with the pandemic, Um, but it happened in my youth with World War II and so forth. It keeps happening. It's always the case that lots of people are dying, and there are different ways of dealing with the fact that you didn't die. So I thought there's wisdom here. There's ways of thinking here. And the, one of the interesting things about the book is this, there's no answer. There's like 19 different answers, which of course means there's no answer. Maybe they all go to heaven. Maybe they're reborn here. Maybe they're absorbed into the Godhead. Maybe they're this, maybe they're that. Maybe they have kind of bodies. Maybe they don't have bodies. So they're, they're working it out. There's no dogma. Now you all shall believe this or that. So I feel that the things that I choose that interest me in the literature of Sanskrit are things that interest men and women of my generation living in Chicago. They are uh, human issues that are not limited by the society we live in and whether or not we have refrigerators and automobiles. They go beyond those differences to a level of humanity which is really shared and that therefore there's wisdom here which people might find useful to have. And therefore, I want anyone who reads English to be able to read it. I think these 
these ideas should be made available. Hinduism um, is famous for another, well, we can get me under another case, but most people, many people believe that the Bhagavad Gita is the Bible of Hindus. It was not an important book at all until the 18th century and then because the British did and so forth. And most Hindus do not read the Bhagavad Gita. So the idea that that's what Hindus believe makes me cross. They believe all sorts of things and a lot of them believe what's here, which is quite different from the Bhagavad Gita. So I want this material to be available for people uh, for the fun of reading and also for the wisdom that's in it. These are really, these are smart people writing these books. They, um, they're very wise and they're very literate. They have been reading a lot of, they read the Upanishads. They, they know all the other stuff that's being written and has been written in India at this time. So they're distilling at least a thousand years of thinking about this already. By, by the turn of the millennium, it's already a thousand years that people in India have been thinking of this. So it's stuff that people should have. It, it may um, make them understand the world a little better, work through their own guilt, uncertainty, what's going to happen when we die. It has some interesting ideas about what's going to happen when we die. The uh, themes that comes up in addition to access, which is such an important theme. You mentioned wisdom, but the word stories comes up again and again. Yeah. And one of the things that I have always found fascinating about you is that you have tried your hand at fiction writing as well. <laughs> and I'd be interested to hear a little bit about how these things come together, whether the writing of fiction has shaped your way of understanding the stories that you find in the texts that you approach as a scholar and maybe vice versa. If they've given you some sense of how wisdom comes to us in stories, I would just be interested to hear you reflect a little bit about your experience as a fiction writer and how that's worked in your scholarly work. Well, I, I have and haven't written about it. So I did write a novel many years ago. Um, called Horses for Lovers, Dogs for Husbands. Mm -hmm. And um, I finished it and I showed, I have a lot of friends who are real writers, Annie Dillard, people like that. <laughs> so I showed it to my friends and they said, I loved the beginning of chapter five. So I realized that I, I wasn't good at writing plots. Um, hmm. I wrote some characters and some scenes, but I didn't have the real quality that a real novel writer has of, of plotting first this happens and that happens and so forth. One of my favorite writers is P.G. Woodhouse and he said that it takes him almost a year to work out all the twists and turns of a plot and when he starts writing it's easy. He just writes. So I realized that I, I didn't have that year. I didn't have that ability. So I never published the novel. I don't even know where it is now. Um, I wrote it long for the days of computer, so I really would have to find a piece of paper in order to find it. But then I wrote a memoir of my parents, and that was more like writing a novel than writing an academic book. I drew upon my own memories of my own life, and I had a wonderful time doing that. And I think that more than both writing the novel and writing the memoir freed up my writing style. The world does not need ever to see my novel. But I think that it helped me to use my own voice 
mm. uh, more boldly um, in writing things. So one of the things about this book I got in trouble with the Hindus that makes people like it, who like it, is that it's written the way I talk. You can sort of hear me in it, and it has jokes and things like that that I normally say. And that idea that I have a right to use my own voice and not pretend I'm a man, a male scholar in the 19th century, then writing the novel helped that and writing the memoir helped that. So my style has changed over the years. It's much less formal. And that came out of the writing of fiction. But I always loved stories best of all. Mm. There is a portrait of me that my uncle Harvey did when I was six. It's a pretty terrible portrait. And he's a very bad painter. Well, he's long, he was a little bit. But it's a picture of me I could show you too. It's up there, it's right here in the house. I'm a little girl. I'm holding a little castle that's like a fairy tale castle like Disneyland with turrets. And on the ground in front of me open is a book on which you can read the words once upon a time. So that is documentary proof that at the age of six, I was already <laughs> characterized by my love of magical fiction. So mm. it's not just stories, but magical stories, mm. un unrealistic mm. stories that I loved as a child, fairy tales. My favorite book has always been Alice in Wonderland. I know it all by heart, Through the Looking Glass. Because there's a lot of India in that book. Dodson at Christchurch College knew a lot about Indian philosophy and the, the white king that imagines everybody is straight out of um, Hindu philosophy. But so I had a, a childhood love of stories rather than of facts or fictions. I'm never any good at history. It doesn't matter to me whether things really happened or not. I'm just, I just care if it makes a good story. Um, so it's, that is an old habit of mine, and the writing of fiction didn't really introduce me to the love of story as it much as it introduced me to my own voice, which is stronger in the books I've written in the last 20 years than the books I wrote before. So Wendy, this, this leads me to, to want to ask you about what you think of the position of the scholar in relation to their object of inquiry. because. Part of what I hear you describing is maybe some evolution or change over the course of your career in the way that you think about your position in relation to the object of your inquiry. And that extends even to you know, what you've described as the wisdom that you see in the Mahabharata. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the way that you see yourself in, in relation to the material that you study? So I'm gonna be 80 in a couple of weeks. Uh, and I published my first book in my 20s. So things have changed both in the world in which I live and in my own self-perceptions over those years. So in the beginning, I felt that my work as a scholar was primarily to find materials that other people had neglected or not known about and bring them to light. So my first two books, my Oxford dissertation, my Harvard dissertation, the book Shiva, the Erotic Ascetic, and The Origins of Evil in Hindu Philosophy. They were books, um, on the one hand, that used sources that no one was using at the time, texts called the Puranas, medieval Sanskrit texts, that the Indian tradition regarded as history because they were all about kings, but they were a lousy history. They were, the dates were all wrong, and historians really rightly scorned them. There were some Indian historians who liked them, but they were considered sort of nationalist nuts and so forth. So. But I found that they had wonderful stories in them. So 
I started using them. And I said, people, I found like finding a treasure. I will show people that there's stuff in these texts that nobody knew about. And in that sense, I was doing that kind of scholarship. I also felt that I had a duty toward the profession. So I read everything that had been written about these texts. And I had lots of footnotes saying, Scholar X says this about this text and Scholar B says this, but I think C. So in those days I did what I would now regard as old fashioned scholarship, which is the excavation of unknown texts largely and the careful reproduction of all the scholarship that preceded my approach to those texts so that the reader has that. At the same time, the Shiva book was really about sexuality and the origins of evil was about my father's death. So even then, I was taking topics that meant a lot to me personally and trying to treat them in a so-called scholarly manner. Um, so as the years went on, I, I did books of translation of text. Sometimes it was to rectify a wrong, the Kama Sutra, for instance. Burton, Sir Richard Burton, not Elizabeth's husband, another Sir Richard Burton, similar guy actually, had translated it at the end of the 19th century. And that's the one that you got because it was free, because it was illegal. Your friends brought you copies from Paris in the old days. And it was wrong. He, he really, he didn't even translate it himself. He hired a Brahmin to do it. It's a really terrible translation. So I thought, no, I got to fix this. So um, I got together with my friend Sudhir and we translated properly. We went back to the Sanskrit. So I still had that feeling of a scholar, which is I have to set the record straight. I have to get it right. And so I still do have that feeling. That's what I'm doing with the Mahabharata. It's been mistranslated. I want to say, no, no, that's not what it says. It says this. So I'm, I'm always aware of what other people have done with the text that I'm doing, but I no longer talk about it in the book. So I'm not going to have any footnotes in this book saying, oh, this guy translates this word differently. This guy, uh, here I disagree with so-and-so who says this is about this. I read it and I decide what I think and then I just write what I think. So I've, I've gotten a different attitude toward my duty to annotate my scholarship in a way. And now that I'm retired especially, I really don't read everything that everybody writes about what I'm writing about anymore. Um, there may be other things that are being written about the Mahabharata right now that are quite interesting and I'm not reading them. I'm just reading the Sanskrit text. So that's something that has changed in me, my feeling of playing by the rules in a way. Years ago, my old friend David Green, who, was, who knew all of Greek literature by heart, when he wanted to write an article, he'd take a text and he wrote what he thought about the text. He would interpret it and so forth. He would then give it to a graduate student. The graduate student would take David Green's text and put in a footnote here which says, in this I am in disagreement with Professor X's translation, or here I owe something to, and David hadn't read any of those articles, but that was how it was sent off to the scholarly journal, how it was published. So in a way, I'm not even putting in those footnotes anymore. It's quite clear that I'm translating a lot of words differently from the way other people translate them. So I have, in a way, taken the privilege of old age to divest myself of some of the scholarly apparatus that I paid more attention to when I was young. That's just a change in a kind of carelessness. For one thing, um, I'm getting old, I don't remember things as well. So I don't remember all the articles I've read. I just have the text, I write what I think. So my attitude toward, toward scholarship in general has changed. But even in the many years when I taught at Chicago, 
I was never as interested in theory as my colleagues were in the divinity school in general and in the field of history religions in particular. It just never seemed to me that it was much relevant to the work I was doing. I didn't find it interesting. I didn't do it very well. Um, I left it to them to do, it was a privilege of teaching at Chicago because I knew my students needed to know this stuff. They weren't gonna get jobs. They had to put it into their own books. But I knew that Bruce would teach it to them, Eliade would teach it to them, Jonathan Smith would teach it to them. I realized it was part of the apparatus of a scholar of history of religions in my day and age. But since I was privileged to have these wonderful colleagues, I figured I don't have to do this. I don't like it, I don't do it well. I don't think I have anything original to contribute to the conversation. I don't get any ideas when I hear these people making these theoretical points. I say, yeah, mm, well, yeah, maybe. Um, so even then I kind of bowed out of part of what it would be the responsibility of a scholar in my field at the time. And I just did something else. And that was a, a bit of luck I had by being at Chicago when I was at Chicago. So this leads, I think, pretty naturally to one of the questions we ask all of our guests. It's clear that you've had a sort of scholarly compass throughout your career. There are things that matter to you. You have an intuitive sense of that, that you've been able to own more and more. So what are the, the biggest questions that your work has tried to address? And if you want, you can talk about how that has changed, how there's been thematic unity, but... We would, just, we would just love to hear more about your work trying to address these bigger questions. I guess I've always felt that, I don't want to generalize for scholars in general. I think it may be true of scholars in general, but I know it's true of me, that I do my best work when I write about things that actually matter to me, mm -hmm. that are not just theoretical questions. Um, the book that I just finished uh, that's coming out in April called... Winged Stallions and Wicked Mares, Horses in Indian Myth and History. Mm. And it's um, a combination of, a most comparison of, the, of what actually happened to horses, part of the actual reality of it. What happens, what kind of soil India has, what kind of a climate India has, how the North is different from the South. It has a lot of realia in it. And it has a lot of realia about horses because I've lived with horses most of my life and I love horses. So there's a lot about the horsiness of horses. And then there's something about the history of India. What happened? Who was there? They all came in on horseback. All the battles were found. And there were different kinds of horses. They brought in Arab horses. They brought in horses from Australia. The British brought in theirs. So there's a certain historical line there. And then on top of that is what the literature says about horses, the imagination of horses in India, and how completely different it is from what actually happened in India, where no one had horses. No one could afford horses. Horses die in India. If you have any money at all, you buy a water buffalo. But all the peasants write about horses. So it's about the imaginaire and about um, the way that the imagination of horses overcame the actual history. But what drove me was the fact that I love horses. So I always mm. notice horses. So whenever I'm in India, I see pictures of horses, I see horses, I ask about the horses. So that's my most recent book. And it shows that I'm still driven by the things that interest me personally. I figure if I'm interested in horses, I bet there are lots of people who are interested in horses. They're all gonna read this book. So whatever I've written about has really been something that I've cared about. 
very often, to the extent that I do, of course, especially when I was young, I did read other scholarship. I was made angry by the fact that everybody else was getting it wrong. I don't, like the Burton translation. Everybody thinks they've read the Kama Sutra. They haven't. He got it all wrong. I've got to write it so they can see how it is. So there are a lot of really wrong books about things in India. And I'd say, okay, I now have, got, this matters. I now have got to write a book. So they'll show that this guy's wrong. And very often I didn't talk about his book. I didn't have little footnotes saying, in this you will see that I, no, no. I would just say, now this is how it was as far as I'm concerned. And if you buy my story, then you won't buy his story. Almost always was a he in those days. So I've always been driven about what matters to me and what I think is people don't get right. And I want to show them my view of it, which I think is better than the going view on whatever has been published. And I've written, therefore, about a lot of the big things. I wrote about what is now called gender long before anyone even used the word, it was sex. I was interested in the way men and women interact and how women are treated in these stories. So I, I wrote a book about women androgynes and other mythical beasts in the early 80s because as a woman, I noticed what, what things were said and done to women. And I thought, well, we got to write about this. There's something wrong here. And I, so I wrote about the mythologizing of women and how women are like mares, how pretty women are like mares and older women are like cows and cows are the nice ones and mares are the bad ones. So it, it, I, I wrote about the things that mattered to me and that I saw had also mattered to people in India. So it wasn't just, look how weird these people in Hinduism is. Look how weird their gods are. They have all these arms and they tell these funny stories. It was about Look how much they understood about the things that we care about too, like sex and death and animals and children and war and so forth and money and everything else that anybody cares about. So I had some confidence that my interests were not weird, that they were shared not only in my culture, but I am after all an Eliadian, that there are certain things that people in all cultures have in common. And that therefore, if I ever learned Chinese and got to know Chinese stories, I'd probably find great stories about horses there and great stories about men beating up on women there. Um, that there are universals. I, I thought that before I ever met Eliada and uh, he confirmed my, my view of it. And that it's fun to see the particular cultural differences. So there are things that Indian texts say about horses and women and death that nobody else says. That's why it's fun to read them. Otherwise, you just read the Bible and be done with it all. So on the one hand, I think we're all dealing with the same big problems. But these people, because they came from a different time and place, thought of things we didn't think of, thought of possibilities we didn't think of. And therefore, we can see new insights into our own enduring and insoluble problems by seeing how the mistakes they made, how they... There are all these different ways to not, Levi Strauss used to say, all the different ways there are to not square the circle, right? You keep trying, you keep trying. So they tried to square the circle in ways that we never even tried. So you go into it with the universal, which is, this is a human point, but then you say, but look, there's a story here that no one ever thought of in, um, that I ever heard of in Western literature and so forth. So you go, you start with the universal, but you quickly branch out into something that makes your book different. 
why should I read the book if it's about what I already know? No, there's stuff in ancient India you don't already know. You didn't mm -hmm. think of. Wendy, this has been a fantastic conversation. And <laughs> you've been asked this question. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, everybody listening to this will be really excited to read the translation uh, when you finish on this section of the Mahabharata. And of course, I'm going to hand it on January 1st, and it'll take them a year or two to fix it up, I guess. Fantastic. So. Um, but in the meantime, you've given us so many other things to think about and to read. And so uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is the Biggest Questions podcast, and uh, we hope that you'll join us again, Wendy. I would love to. I had a great time.